All right, gang, go ahead and get comfortable and take your Bible if you brought it and go to Acts chapter one. All right. Acts chapter one. If you are a student, if you enjoy studying your Bible, I think you're going to enjoy this message today. Uh, it's a lot more like a, a lesson, I think, than it is a message. I want to teach you something uh, about not only the church, but about your place in it, about your personal faith. Um, two weeks ago, we embarked on a little mini series, three parts entitled Now What? Now What? Uh, Tyler and Jonathan cooked up this idea a few weeks before Easter, knowing that I would be out of town on vacation one of those Sundays. And the two optimistic guys, they sit down and they say, you know, after Jesus dies on Friday, rises from the dead on Sunday, spends 40 days with his followers, then ascends to heaven. Well, now what? Now what? What do we do? Now what is one of those questions that we often ask ourselves following a big event in our lives? Um, maybe when you graduated high school or you graduate college, it's it's very obvious to wonder what's next, you know, kind of you rub your hands together. Now, well, now what? Now what? And that's kind of the way Jonathan and Tyler were looking at it. Uh, this week in the office has kind of been a running joke. I've been getting the title wrong. Instead of now what? I've been saying what now? What now? Uh, I think that's when you're a little older and life's beat you up a little bit. It's like, oh, what now? So now what? Uh, it can be a good event, like, again, graduation, getting married, having a baby. Oh, well, now what? This is exciting. What's next? Uh, it can also follow a difficult event, like uh, losing someone you love. You know, now what? My whole life has changed. I remember vividly going through a divorce, and my family changed, my marriage, of course, changed, my life changed, my job and profession changed, and I remember looking at God saying, well, well now what? Now, now what? When things don't go the way we think they're going to go, or are supposed to go, we often look to heaven and ask, well, now what? Well, when it comes to Acts, the disciples spent 40 days, according to the Bible, uh, with Jesus. And then he ascended to the Father. Uh, and they were asking that same question. Now what? Well, if you know the book of Acts, there was so much. The answer to the question, now what, is, according to Acts, oh, hold on to your hats, because there's so much. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus gives them what we call uh, the Great Commission or part of the Great Commission. Go and get, be my witnesses. Uh, then he ascends, verse 9, and look how they respond in verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? There's a really good answer to that question, and it's because we've never seen a man fly before. Why am I looking into the sky? I've never seen anything like this. But imagine how they were feeling. Uh, some of these men had spent years with Christ. And now that he was alive, I mean, their whole experience with Jesus was kind of an up and down emotional roller coaster. He was dead on Friday and it was over as far as they could tell. By Saturday, everything was gone. But Sunday, everything changed. And then 40 days they spend with him in close fellowship, in close communion. He's giving them their marching orders. He's explaining the mission of the church. Go be my witnesses. This group of close devoted followers would be the one to start this New Testament church revolution. So now that he's gone, they're just looking up into heaven saying, well, what now? This same Jesus who is taken from you into heaven will come back the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, if you know anything about the book of Acts, in fact, if you have a study Bible, the title of this book is probably the Acts of the Apostles. 
Because in this book, we're introduced to, you know, uh, some pretty profoundly impactful characters in the first century church. Uh, you know Peter. Uh, we're introduced to a man named Saul, who later becomes Paul, the greatest missionary the church has ever known. Uh, we know about James, and we know about John. We learn about Barnabas. We learn about Matthias. Uh, all of these men and women, Luke lists many of them in the first chapter, had gathered to wait on Jesus. In fact, the first time we got together, Jonathan explored that idea of waiting. What now? Well, you're going to have to wait a little while. And really, there are two kinds of waiting. We see them in verses 10 and 11, waiting to receive something. Where'd you go, Jesus? We can't do this without you. Where are you going? Are you coming back for us? We're just going to stand here and wait to receive something from you. But in verses 12 and 13, we find they're waiting to respond because they're doing exactly what Jesus wanted them to do. They're gathered together. They're praying. They're waiting to be sent out to fulfill the mission. So you've got two kinds of waiting. And as Jonathan spoke a couple of weeks ago, I couldn't help but see myself in that analogy. It is very easy to get stuck on the receiving side of waiting. I've been stuck there for years at a time. Waiting to receive something from God that I think I deserve before I'm willing to act. Some people wait to receive a change in circumstance. They're waiting for God to heal their body. They're waiting for God to bring their marriage back together. They're waiting to receive something from God. And they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. That's not how we're supposed to wait according to this passage. We're supposed to wait in order to respond. Regardless of what you think about church or the faith walk or spirituality or the Christian life, you need to understand that according to the book of Acts, the mission of the church matters most to God. That's why I think churches that remind themselves of the mission and remain true to the mission are churches that are blessed of God. Churches that lose sight of the mission, lose focus of the mission and begin to drift away, becoming egocentric and us-centric are not necessarily blessed of God. The book of Acts covers 30 years of church history. It is There's no other book like it in the New Testament. In fact, many of the New Testament epistles, like 1st and 2nd Corinthians, or 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, or James, these New Testament epistles were written, they were penned by the apostles during the time frame that is covered in the book of Acts, you see? For 30 years, this church revolution is beginning to gain momentum, and the author, who incidentally is the same author as the Gospel of Luke, Dr. Luke Theophilus, Luke is the one who writes this down, and gives us a record of the ongoings of the first century church. Now, critical to your understanding of the book of Acts, and I bring this to your attention only because I know some of you are students, and you're going to leave here today, and you're going to be interested in this book, and sometime tonight or tomorrow you're going to start reading your way through it, in order for it to make as much sense as possible, you need to recognize some of the notable transitions that take place in the book of Acts. You have four Gospels or biographies that precede it, and all of the church epistles that follow it. Acts is unlike either those that precede it, the Gospels, or those that follow it, the epistles. It's all by itself. And in this historical record, we have a transition from one thing to another on various levels. Let me just point out a few of these to you because Luke identifies them all. In Acts, we have a transition from the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of the apostles. Okay, that's number one. You realize in the Gospels, Jesus was the minister. And the disciples just kind of followed him around. They participated a little bit, but he was the minister. 
Jesus was responsible for the ministry. Jesus was responsible to be the minister. But in Acts, he is no longer the minister. Now it's the apostles and the New Testament church that are the ministers. At Grace, we have a saying around here, members are ministers. You see, we don't just have one or two or three or four ministers at this church. We have hundreds of ministers in this church because the book of Acts clearly spells out a transition from Christ as minister to us as ministers. There's another transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. If you have your Bible, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, there was an old covenant, and Acts describes a change, a transition to a new covenant. Remember Christ's words at the Last Supper. He said, this bread used to represent the manna from heaven in the exodus of the Old Testament. Now this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. We're transitioning. He said, this cup used to represent the blood of the lamb that was painted on the doorpost, and the angel of death passed over those homes in Egypt. That's why they celebrated Passover and the Passover lamb. But now this cup represents a new covenant in my blood. The Apostle Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Surprise, surprise, whether you know it or not, you're used to it. This was brand new to these readers. You see, no one in the Old Testament had confidence before God. You realize that? No one in the Old Testament could enter the presence of God. Did you know that? One man, one time a year, the high priest would enter the holy of holies in the temple and would make the sacrifice for the sin of the nation. But I, as Joe Common Man, had no business entering the presence of God. I was certainly not confident in myself. I was certainly, in reference to the law, a sinner and not worthy. But look what Paul says. Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Biggest difference between Old Testament faith or belief or knowledge and New Testament faith, belief and knowledge is Old Testament trusted the law to make me righteous. If I keep the law, then I'm righteous before God. Only problem was no one could do it. In the New Testament, we don't trust the law or our behavior. It's not about whether or not I swear. It's not about how much I drink. It's not about whether or not I lose my temper every now and then. It's not about this, that, or the other. It's about my faith in Jesus Christ. He is my advocate. He is my representative. He is my mediator. I stand before the judge, the creator, over all of the universe, and I do so with confidence because I'm standing behind Christ. That's the picture of the New Testament, and the book of Acts records that transition. He goes on, he's made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not the letter, the letter being the law. You've heard of the letter of the law. It's not about the law anymore. It's about the spirit for the letter kills. Nobody can live up to it. Nobody can keep the law 100%. We're all guilty before God, but the spirit gives life. Keep going back to our list. Another interesting transition, not only the old covenant to the new, but from Israel as God's witness to the church as God's witness. Now, if you know your Old Testament story, you know that God decided to carve out a peculiar nation, a specific nation, starting with Abraham called Israel. And this nation, primarily because of God's law, the law of Moses, would be unlike any other surrounding nation. It was very important to God in the Old Testament that Israel not resemble the Canaanites. 
that they not look like the Jebusites, that they not act like or worship like the Amalekites. He wanted them peculiar. Why? Because they would be the witness of God to the nations. Acts records a transition from Israel as God's witness to the world to the church as God's witness to the world. That's big because you're part of that and I'm part of that as well. That is the mission. All right. One more. From the dispensation of law to the dispensation of grace. Again, take your Bible. Go to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 verse 21. Acts records several transitions, one of which is from the dispensation. That's A dispensation is a period of time. Bible scholars teach us that there have been seven dispensations in the Bible according to man, or according to God in his reference uh, to his relationship with man. During a dispensation, a preconceived, preordained period of time, God works with man in a specific kind of way. Um, God doesn't talk to Mike the way he talked to Abraham because we're under different dispensations. Moses didn't get to God the way Mike gets to God because we're under different dispensations. In Acts, we have the, uh, the changing of the guards, so to speak. We have a, a transition from the dispensation of the law, the Old Testament law, to that of grace. Uh, Paul writes about this in Romans 3, verse 21. Verse 21 says, But now, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now stop for a second, because some of you tend to get the cart before the horse in your spirituality. You think the only way you can be a Christian is to stop doing this and start doing that and get better at this, and i got to quit that, and I better get on the stick with that. Once I get all that taken care of, then I can be a Christian. Because then I've kept the law, and somehow I've earned this position in, uh, in Christ. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, now there is a righteousness before God. Now there is a, boom, God's stamp of approval on Mike. Now there is a stamp of approval on Mike as righteous before God that's not through the law. It has nothing to do with how many times a day Mike loses his cool, or whether or not Mike wrestles with his thoughts, or whether or not Mike has a temper problem, or whether or not Mike is angry, or whether or not Mike is this, that, or the other, because it's not about Mike, and it's not about the law. It's a righteousness that comes by faith, because again, I stand behind Jesus Christ. He goes, Verse number 22, the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. What was the primary difference in biblical times between Jew and Gentile? Well, the Jews had the law and they lived by it. The Gentiles did not. Paul is saying when it comes to getting to God, it doesn't matter who's religious and who's not, who's super spiritual and who's not, who keeps more rules than the other. That None of that matters. What matters is, because it's available to all, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? For all have sinned, verse 23, and fall short of God's glory, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You realize, Old Testament people lived, operated, connected with God under the dispensation of law. It was about the law of Moses. In Acts, we transition from the law to that of grace. Uh, Here's another one. The one I want to focus on today. In Acts, you see a transition from the spirit of God's presence to the spirits indwelling every one of us, every believer. You see, 
In the Old Testament, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, did not indwell someone like David or Moses or Abraham. But in the New Testament, we learn that our bodies become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills us at the time of conversion or salvation. Do you know in David's, David's a great example of this. When David sinned with Bathsheba in the Old Testament, he begged God to forgive him. And he recorded that prayer of apology and confession in Psalm chapter 51. In Psalm chapter 51, we have David's outpouring of confession, and part of it reads as follows. Do not take your spirit from me. You see, one of the big differences between followers of Christ and those who knew God in the Old Testament, New Testament versus Old Testament, is in the Old Testament, God's spirit came upon someone for a prescribed period of time and a very specific purpose. But in the New Testament, it's not about coming on David for a time as he leads God's kingdom or coming on the king or coming on Abraham or coming on Moses as he led God's people. It's about indwelling every follower of Jesus Christ that we might carry out the mission because the mission matters most. What is the mission, you ask? Well, the mission is simply sharing the story of Jesus Christ. We call it the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And the disciples shouldn't have been surprised at this because even though they were kind of slow on the uptake, it took a while to put these pieces together. Before Jesus even died, he laid it out for them. Listen to Luke chapter 24 and verse 46. He, being Christ, told them, being the disciples, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer. And rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. Watch to all nations. Someone asks you, what does your church believe? What's the main thing in Christianity? You use the word gospel. What does that mean? It means Christ suffered. He died. He rose from the dead on the third day. Our repentance finds his forgiveness And that's the message of the church to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are the witnesses to all these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, referring to the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until I've been until you've been clothed with power from on high. According to Acts chapter one, verses 12 through 14, that's exactly what they did. They followed his instructions to the letter. Luke tells us they had a prayer meeting in verse 13 of chapter 1. He tells us all the people that were at that prayer meeting. And according to chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit revitalized them. The Holy Spirit filled them that they might fulfill the mission. Nothing has changed, church. The mission is the same today as it was in the first century. Now, some in the church today, especially in our community, different churches, different denominations have so idolized the first century church that they've lost sight of its original problems. In other words, some are so enamored by the outpouring of God's Spirit in the first century church that they want to figure out how can we do that today. Some look at the way God's Spirit was poured out in the first century and the way people were responding around the globe, the way the church was growing by leaps and bounds, the power to heal illness, the power to change lives, and they look at their church and they say, why don't we see that today? Why don't we see that in our church today? They so elevate or glamorize that first century church as if it were somehow perfect and ours is not. Let me remind you of something. Their church was every bit as troubled as our churches are today. 
Believe it or not, in the first century, Luke records many of these, there were divisions between the apostles. The leaders of the church couldn't even agree on many of the basic tenets of Christianity. We're going to examine one of those today. Just like there are divisions in our churches today, just like people get upset and cross their arms and storm out of the church and I'm not coming back, I found a better way or a better church, that's what was happening in the first century church uh, as well. Good men and women disagreed. Be lots easier if we are all uniform. A lot of people are greatly troubled about the political division in our culture today. America is divided 50-50 or close to it. Half are on one side and half are on the other. And we would all probably feel better about ourselves, about the state of our nation, if we were unified. But the division has been around since the very beginning. Look, at Grace Community Church, we've tried to keep it very simple from the beginning. We've said, look, what is this church about 20 years ago? Well, it's about showing people there's a better way of life in Christ. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, here's a little slogan we adopted many years ago. At this church, we believe a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission will grow a great church. At this church, we believe that if you are committed to the great commandment, love God and love others, that's the great commandment, love God and love others, are you committed to it? And the great commission, go into all the world and tell my story, make disciples, baptize them and I'll be with you. A great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission will grow a great church. That's been the mission since the very beginning. Now listen, I understand that your relationship with God is personal to you. I understand it's a very private matter. I understand that for some of you, it is so private, it is so intimate that it's difficult for you to even talk about publicly with anyone. I get that. I'm not telling you yours has to look like mine. I'm certainly not saying yours has to look like someone else's. But I am saying this. If yours has no room for shouldering the mission of the church, you're missing the entire point. The reason God saves us and leaves us is because he has a job for us. Have you ever wondered why if God would just take us once we embrace authentic faith, when we buy in, when we believe, as the Bible puts it, Jesus suffered, rose again, he died for me. Why didn't God just take us to heaven right then? Because he's got something for us to do. And the book of Acts spells that out. It remains the duty of this church, just like it was the first church, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, we joked this past week, Jonathan took chapter 1, Tyler came along the next week, took chapter 2. I'm going to take chapters 3 to 28, and I'm going to do it in 10 minutes. Okay? So hold on to your hat. Before we get to 15, which is where I'm going to read, we're going to point out some of that division. Let me just bring you up to speed. In Acts chapter 2, we understand that the church was in great harmony. There was great unity in the body of Christ in Acts chapter 2. The Bible says that they were worshiping together, they were fellowshipping together, they were meeting one another's needs, they were responding to the instruction of the apostles, and there was evangelism that was taking place. Those five principles, they've been tenets of this church from the very beginning. This church is about worship, it's about instruction, it's about fellowship, it's about evangelism, and it's about ministry, just like the first century church. In chapter 2, everybody clearly saw the goal, that's why there was so much harmony. We move on to chapter 5. They begin to feel their first feelings of persecution. The church begins to be persecuted and they handle it with great dignity and strength. But by chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen takes place. It's the church's first recorded martyr. Stephen died simply because he was a follower of Jesus Christ. He became the first martyr of the church. And incidentally, 
In the latter verses of chapter 7, we're introduced to a young Pharisee named Saul. S-A-U-L. Saul. Saul became the leader of the persecution in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Saul would later be converted and become Paul. More on that in just a second. In chapter 8, the Gentiles begin to respond to God's grace. Here's where the church hits its first speed bump. Gentiles were now responding to the story of Jesus. You see, up until this point, many people thought Christianity was just kind of like a division of Judaism. Because most of the people who were calling themselves Christian were Jews that had converted or had completed their faith by accepting Messiah. Many people thought, well, that's just a branch of Judaism. No, it wasn't anything of the sort. Many people assumed, well, all they are is just kind of one little group of, of, of Judaism because they thought Christianity was only for Jews. Well, in chapter 8, Gentiles begin to respond. These are people with no knowledge of the Mosaic law. These are the people with no idea what it was in the Old Testament to please God by offering certain kinds of sacrifices. And yet they're responding. People are taking the message to Gentiles, and the Gentiles are responding. Further, the Gentiles are being filled with the Holy Spirit, just like the Jews were filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, and the church began to divide or come down on opposite sides of that same issue. No one knew exactly what to do about it. That's when the division began. Chapter 9, Saul, the persecutor, becomes Paul, the apostle. Paul was the most profoundly impactful missionary of the first century. You realize Saul turned Paul, wrote more than half of your New Testament. That's Saul and his conversion. In chapter 10, Peter learned a valuable lesson. You see, when the Gentiles began responding, Peter came down on one side of that argument. They don't belong with Jews. And Paul made himself the apostle to the Gentiles. They do belong with Jews. In fact, Peter had a dream. And in this dream, this meal comes down from heaven and there's a big pig as a main course. And God says, Peter, rise up and go eat it. Chow down. And Peter says, oh, no, in a very self-righteous kind of way. I'm not going to eat that because that's an unclean animal. You see, as part of Peter's Jewish upbringing and heritage, part of his law, you don't eat a pig. A pig is an unclean animal. How did God respond in chapter 10? He said, Peter, how dare you call something unclean that I've called clean? And the moral to that dream, the point God wanted Peter to get was, stop calling Gentiles unclean. I've called them clean. I've introduced them to the gospel and they're responding by faith. Now, in Acts chapter 11, Peter finally has it. He's finally figured it out. The church is still divided and people still come down on opposite sides of this issue. But Peter has finally come around. Look at Acts 11 in verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, circumcision was a big part of the Old Testament law, they criticized him and they said, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man, you ate with them. Jesus was uh, criticized for the very same thing by the Pharisees. This issue became more and more divisive in the first century church. Why? Because they simply lost focus of the mission. They chose their own personal preference as to how and when and where and what kinds of people should worship over the mission, which was clearly spelled out by Jesus Christ. One of the most profound messages I've ever listened to was, was, was a message by a man by the name of Max Lucado, 
who was a pastor out in Texas and an author of many books. It was at a Promise Keepers rally many years ago in the Georgia Dome. And in this particular message, he likened the New Testament church as a big ship. And he talked about the group up in the bridge, the group responsible for navigating the ship. He talked about the group down in the boiler room responsible for shoveling the coal, the group that manned the guns, the group that worked in the galley. And he talked about how the Christian church needs to come together as one and focus on the mission. One of the things he's written, I'd like to read you a couple of paragraphs with me, because I don't think we do that. Some of you have come from churches that are far better at tearing down other churches than they'll ever be at reaching a lost community. And that's why you love grace so much, because we don't do that. We haven't lost sight of the mission. Listen to Max. He writes, how many pulpit hours have been wasted on preaching the trivial? How many churches have tumbled at the throes of minuscuity? How many leaders have saddled their pet peeves, drawn their swords of bitterness, and launched into battle against brethren over issues that are just not worth discussing? Ah, so close to the cross, but so far from the Christ. You see, we specialize in I am right rallies in the church. We write books about what the other guy does wrong. We major in finding gossip and become experts in unveiling their weaknesses. We split into little huddles and then, God forbid, we split again. But are our differences that divisive? Are our opinions that obtrusive? Are our walls that wide? Is it that impossible to find a common cause? May they all be one, Jesus prayed. One. Not one in groups of two or two thousand, but one in one. One church, one faith, one Lord, one Baptist, or not Baptist, not Methodist, not Adventist, just Christian. No denominations, no hierarchies, no traditions, just Christ. You realize churches that remain focused on the mission are generally unified churches. And churches that splinter into little factions bickering and arguing over what my personal preference about church might be or look like are churches that don't. God blesses churches unified in the mission. I don't think God's with churches that are not unified in the mission. Let me read you something and I'll wrap this up from Acts 15. In Acts 15, this problem has grown so big, so large, that they decide to hold a council at Jerusalem. So they appoint certain apostles and certain followers of Christ to travel to Jerusalem and they're supposed to make the case that the gospel is for all men, not just the Jews. And even if the gospel is for all men and a Gentile responds, he doesn't have to transform and make his life look like that of a Jew. The council is recorded for us in chapter 15. Look at verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers... Unless you are circumcised, again, huge part of the Old Testament law, Gentiles not circumcised, Jews circumcised. According to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp disagreement and dispute, debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. So they get up there and they report, hey... We're missionaries and we're going to the Gentiles and we're sharing the gospel and lives are being changed and Gentiles are being filled with the spirit and the people celebrate. Skip down to verse five. But then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed the whole crowd. Peter says, you've got it wrong. God is one God and God offers faith. Uh, to, to the many, not just the few. Skip down to verse 9. Verse 9. 
He, being God, Peter's talking, God did not discriminate between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors as Jews have been able to bear? He's talking about the law. He could never live up to the law. The law never saved anybody because nobody could do it. Verse 11. No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are as Gentiles. Look, some of us are old enough to remember when churches preach dress codes. Do you come from a church that preached a dress code? Anybody? Ladies supposed to dress this way. Got to see lots of you. See, some of us are old enough to remember when church preached against movies. Church preached against certain kinds of beverages. Churches preached against hairstyles, believe it or not. Makeup, believe it or not. Some of us are old enough to remember what legalism looked like to the church 30 years ago. Today, we don't preach those things. I can't tell you the last time I watched a message online or read a book and the guy was talking about the length of a woman's skirt. That's ridiculous. I'd use that to start my fire in the winter if I had a book like that. Okay? But we're still every bit as legalistic. We've still got our pet peeves and our preferences. We still say that for worship to be meaningful, it has to look like this. And for a church experience to be this, it has to be that. And for a church to grow, a church to move forward, it has to do these things. We're every bit as legalistic as they were. Why? Because it will always be easier to focus on your personal preference than it is the mission of the church. And a message like today's is to remind you of the mission. Go and tell my story. Look, I don't have any time, so I'm going to basically hit these quickly, and I'll come back to them in a few weeks, because this is good stuff. If you'd like to take notes, write this down. Here are three equations that often rule our spiritual lives, especially if we're leaning toward that legalistic side. These are the three equations that led, that ruled the lives of the legalists in the book of Acts. Number one, legalism, that's following the rules, that's knowing the rules, that's knowledge, Legalism plus works, that's Christianity. What is Christianity? How do you know you're a follower of Christ? Well, I keep the rules. Well, I live a certain way. Well, I do good deeds in my community. To many who are worshiping in churches around this community, that's all they know of Christianity. It's about legalism, keeping the rules, and good works. Well, how about forgiveness? How do we find forgiveness? To the legalist, That involves good behavior and performance. Because, see, you can't simply ask God to forgive you. You've got to earn part of it. There's got to be some longevity. You've got to stick with this for a time. And then maybe when you prove yourself by a certain level of performance, God will forgive you. That's not what the Scripture teaches. The third equation is this. Rules plus self-control equals the faith walk. Or spirituality. In other words, if I know more rules than you, and I live by more rules than you then obviously I'm more spiritual than you, right? If I live by more rules than you, if I exercise more self-control than you, oh, you struggle with that? Well, I don't struggle with that. Obviously, I am closer to Jesus. That's not what the Scripture teaches. See? Now, last one. Here are Paul's three equations. This is how you want to live your life. Number one, what is Christianity? Christianity is Christ plus salvation. That's it. Plain and simple. Christianity is a dead Messiah on Friday who overcame sin, death, and the grave on Sunday. And I respond by faith, that's salvation, that is Christianity. Christ plus my response. Number two, confession plus grace is how we're forgiven. 
When I confess, the scripture says clearly, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Even if I just asked him to forgive me yesterday, and even if I have to ask him to forgive me again tomorrow, forgiveness comes from the combination of my confession and his grace. And here's the big one, the big one that I hope you get. Faith, the faith walk, spirituality is about combining surrender to God and freedom in Christ. That's the faith walk. Surrender to God and freedom in Christ. You see, your faith walk doesn't have to look exactly like mine. That's because we're free. See, if you're surrendered and I'm surrendered, we're both children of God. We don't necessarily walk the same path in the same steps. We may look a little different. We may have different preferences and that's okay. So long as we remain focused on the mission. See, that's what matters most. It's surrender plus freedom. That's the faith walk. How many of you know it? I bring these things to your attention because I'm convinced some of you don't know it. Some of you like the idea of uniformity. Man, if we just all looked alike and we just all talked alike and we just all acted alike, boy, this would be a strong church. It'd be a weak church. It'd be a weak church. You see, when we from diverse backgrounds come together and focus on the mission of the church, that's what makes us strong. What now? (laughs) Wait. Wait to be sent. Wait to respond because I have a job for you. What now? The fire is coming. I'm going to fill you to share my story. What now? Stay focused on the mission and I will be with you. Let's pray. Father, I don't ever want this church to lose sight of the mission. Father, we don't exist to gather to feel good about ourselves or even to feel good about you. We exist to share your story. So, Father, help us recognize that we don't need to be missionaries or or ministers. We don't have to have theology degrees in order to minister or focus on the mission. We could simply invite someone to church. We could simply love our neighbor. We could simply try and meet a need in our community. Father, thank you for the privilege of joining you at your work in this place. And I pray we'll never lose sight of the profoundly powerful mission of this, your church. I pray it because of my faith in your son, Jesus. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Fantastic to see you. I mean that. Go make a great day of it. Beautiful out there. I'll see you next time.